You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is March 4th, which means it's the first week of Women's History Month. And to celebrate, we've built a special program that'll highlight a random woman from history so that we can celebrate her achievement. Let's see who we got today. Oh, Danica Johnson, the first woman to order for a man at a restaurant. Oh, hi, thank you. We'll have two fettuccines, please. But Danica, I don't like fettuccine. He loves fettuccines. Anyway, on tonight's show, we look at Joe Biden's 50 latest scandals, what first ladies rarely do, and the pettiest thing a Republican senator has done today. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the coronavirus vaccine. It's the reason America's hot new trend is hanging outside the dumpster at CVS. With more doses hitting the street every day, the U.S. now expects to have enough vaccine for every adult by the end of May. But not everyone will have to wait that long. A group of great apes in San Diego have made history as the first animals to receive the COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. According to a wildlife health officer, the decision to administer the vaccines came after eight gorillas at the San Diego Zoo became the first great apes in the world to contract COVID. Okay, okay, I know some people out there might be mad that apes are getting the vaccine before them, but it's all part of the priority list, people. It goes healthcare workers, the elderly, people with underlying conditions, apes, then you, right after teachers, children, people who don't want it, everyone who became elderly while you were waiting, then all your friends, than you, so just be patient. Honestly, I think this is great. I mean, not just because I can finally hang out with apes in person instead of over Zoom like I'm doing right now, but because apes are noble creatures who are frankly way more deserving than any human. You got that, Caesar? You just remember, old Trevor had your back from day one, buddy. You remember me when it's your planet. But let's make like QAnon and head over to the US Capitol. President Biden and the Democrats now have enough votes to get their coronavirus relief bill passed over Republican objections. But while Republicans can't kill the bill, at least one has found a way to be a dick about it. Senate Republicans launch an effort to delay the vote on President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin says he plans to force Senate staff to read the entire relief bill out loud on the floor adding at least 10 hours to the process. I don't want to sound like a leftist, but I'm going to resist. Okay, so the first way I'm going to resist is I'm going to go down and object to the waiving of the reading of the bill. I will make them read their 600 to 700-page bill. Oh, that's my man, Ron Johnson, delaying desperately needed aid he knows is going to get passed anyway. And to all the hungry kids out there, be patient. Ron Johnson is making a symbolic point. You can eat tomorrow or maybe next week, whatever. But on the real though, this is not just petty, it's disgusting. And on top of that, I'd respect him maybe a little bit more if he read the bill himself. But instead, this bitch is making some poor clerk read it. 
Like, you don't get to act like you're some heroic resistor if someone else is doing the work. Now I wanna see how Ron Johnson defends his family. Hey, you think you can hit on my wife? Well, you got another thing coming. Kick his ass, wife. Kick his ass. And by the way, I love how he says, I don't wanna sound like a leftist. That's become the new no homo for Republicans. Yo, bro, no leftist? But I think we should all get an equal share of guac on our chips. All right, let's move on now to our main story. President Joseph, reprehensible Biden. And yes, that is his new middle name, reprehensible. Because Biden has been in office for just six weeks. And already, people, he has had more scandals than any president before him. As we'll find out in another episode of Joe Biden, the worst president in history that we can remember. You know, it's hard to even keep track of all the scandalous things that Joe Biden has done since the last time we did this segment. But yesterday, he said one of the most outrageous things anybody, or at least anybody on Fox News, has ever heard. Part of the president's plea with the American people when he took over was to stop talking about political opponents like they are enemies because they are not. And he's not calling these Republican leaders reopening their states enemies, but he is calling them Neanderthals. I think it's a big mistake. The last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. What a uniter Joe Biden is. <laughs> you know, this is Mr. Unity. And yet, if you disagree with him, you're a Neanderthal. It turns out that he's just another snob using dismissive, deplorable-like, demeaning language to describe people who didn't vote for him. He called them Neanderthals. Now, you don't call one of the largest states in the union Neanderthal. According to Joe Biden, only a Neanderthal would lift COVID restrictions on Americans. I started the Neanderthal caucus because Neanderthals are hunter-gatherers. They're protectors of their family. They are resilient. They're resourceful. They tend to their own. I can't believe that Joe Biden has the nerve to call these great Americans Neanderthals. But also, calling them Neanderthals is actually a compliment. So apologize, Joe Biden, but also thank you. But how dare you? But also, you're so sweet. Resign, my best friend. This is just disgusting, people. Not only did Joe Biden call Republicans the N-word, but he forced them to acknowledge evolution. That is the worst thing you can do to a Republican. And by the way, point me to a single Neanderthal that died from COVID. Huh? Guess you're not so smart now, huh, buddy? And it's bad enough that Joe Biden is insulting people who don't want to wear masks. But what's even worse is that Joe Biden is a monster who wants to wear a mask himself. Why is Joe Biden still wearing a mask? He's been vaccinated. <laughs> like this virtue signaling that continues on is just really getting tiresome. You tell him. What kind of sick person goes out of his way to set an example? You never once saw Donald Trump care about public health. No, he stood shoulder to shoulder with ordinary people and contracted COVID because that's leadership, Mr. President, if that even is your real name. What Joe Biden doesn't understand is that wearing a mask is a personal decision that everyone should get to make for themselves, except for Joe Biden, who isn't allowed to wear a mask because it annoys me. But clearly there's something else going on here. Joe Biden is hiding something under that mask. Could it be 
a Hitler mustache? Take off your mask, Joe, or you are the new Hitler. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is not only failing on COVID, he's a one-man super spreader for an even worse pandemic, cancel culture. President Biden didn't even mention Dr. Seuss in his presidential proclamation honoring Read Across America Day yesterday. The Biden White House has erased, literally erased Dr. Seuss from their Read Across America proclamation this week. So it's Dr. Seuss's birthday. The Biden administration is refusing to celebrate. Biden administration canceled the entire, it's like Dr. Seuss. Magic wand doesn't exist. That's right. Joe Biden has a magic wand and he used it to erase Dr. Seuss. He could have been doing something that would actually benefit the country with that wand. You know, like making all the face masks disappear. And how hypocritical is it to tell America that they should be listening to doctors and then literally murder an esteemed medical expert like Dr. Seuss? Look out, America. This is just the beginning of Biden's crusade against all doctors, but only the real ones, which I guess means Dr. Jill Biden has nothing to worry about. And by the way, what a sad departure from America's last president who respected Dr. Seuss so much that he constantly spoke in made up words. Anonymous, anonymous, United States. There's no sugarcoating it. This administration is going to the dogs. And what's even sadder is those dogs are ugly as shit. Oh, I gotta show you some nonsense from the White House. They put this out, they've got this Paufus, some sort of cutesy account for the dogs. Did you see the dog? Let's get, I wanna show you something I noticed. Doesn't he look a little, uh, little rough? This dog looks like from, I'm sorry, from the junkyard. And I love that dog, but he looks like he's not been well cared for. He looks very dirty and disheveled and uh, very unlike a presidential dog like uh, Millie or Victory or something else in the past in the, uh, in the White House. Yeah, dude. Drag that dog. Hey, Fido, why don't you go fetch a new stylist? I mean, what the hell has that dog been doing, huh? Running around playing? No wonder he looks like that. Everyone knows if you want your dog to remain in mint condition, you never take it out of the packaging. Joe Biden has a lot to explain about how he treats that pet. No dog should ever look mangier than Ted Cruz. Hell, I'll say it. I do not like this dog. I do not like it here or there. I do not like it anywhere. And yeah, that's right, I'm quoting Dr. Seuss. Is that illegal now? Well, then I'll stop because I've got priors. So, those are the many Joe Biden scandals exposed by the muckraking journalists of conservative media in just the last three weeks. And who knows, by this time tomorrow, we could find out that Biden doesn't empty the crumb train he's toaster, or even worse, he sits when he pees. And when he does, We'll be there to tell you all about it in another episode of Joe Biden, the worst president in history that we can remember. All right, when we come back, we'll look into the history of America's first ladies. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. When Joe Biden was inaugurated as president in January, his wife, Jill Biden, became first lady. Joining the ranks of such iconic women as Michelle Obama, Barbara Bush, and Ivanka Trump. But how did the role of first lady become so important to American government? Well, in honor of Women's History Month, we decided to find out in another episode of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. The first lady. 
It's not a job that's actually in the Constitution, but that's just because in 1787, women hadn't been invented yet. And even though First Lady is not an official role, they've been important figures in the country from the very beginning. From the earliest days, America's First Ladies were referred to as Lady Presidentress or Republican Queen. The term First Lady didn't come into use really until Dolly Madison's time. The fourth first lady pioneered the practice of championing social causes. She helped orphan children and supported women's rights. And it's said that at Mrs. Madison's funeral, President Zachary Taylor eulogized her as the country's first lady, the first time that title was ever used. That's right. Dolly Madison was the first first lady, but she didn't know it because President Taylor only called her that at her funeral. If I were Dolly Madison, I would be dead, but also I would have been so pissed at Zachary Taylor. Because before him, people were calling her Lady Presidentress or Republican Queen. And those are so much cooler as names. Then at her funeral, some dude is like, no, she was the first lady. If I was her, I'd be getting out of that casket like, what you say? Bitch, you call me Queen Supreme. First Lady Queen. But while the idea of a first lady has been around from the beginning, the job as we know it today didn't really kick off until the 1930s. You know, it's like how, for years, Netflix was a company that sent DVDs in the mail. But that's not what people think of as Netflix now. And the first streaming on demand first lady was Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt really innovated the first lady's role as a public communicator. She wrote thousands of columns, 27 books. She participated in hundreds of radio shows. She felt that her role was to really reach out to the American people and to learn from them about what they wanted in policy. First Lady had taken to the road and traveled hundreds of thousands of miles. Going right to the source of the country's pain during the Depression, meeting miners in Appalachia, challenging Southern Democrats to support anti-lynching legislation, and during World War II, visiting internment camps where Japanese Americans were imprisoned simply because of their race. The first lady was often alone at the wheel, driving herself cross country. Now that is ballsy as hell. Eleanor Roosevelt was so politically active, she visited the Japanese internment camps that her husband set up. It's so classic for a wife to go around cleaning up her husband's mess. She was probably at those internment camps like, I'm sorry, he just gets a little racist sometimes. Work has been really stressful. He's not normally this way. Really, really he isn't. And she even took road trips by herself, which was very gutsy in the 1930s. There was no phones, no GPS, you know? Although I guess it's hard to get lost when there were only like, what, two roads in the entire country? Okay, young buck, listen up. You wanna get from California to the White House, pay attention. You wanna turn onto road, are you listening? You wanna turn onto road one. And then you're gonna drive straight on road one and then you'll be there. And once Eleanor Roosevelt realized that she could use her position to bring attention to the issues that were important to her, every first lady who followed did the same. Lady Bird Johnson sought to beautify the nation and took an active role in the Head Start program for early child development. Barbara Bush advocated for literacy, as did Laura Bush. 
1962, Jackie Kennedy Onassis created the White House Historical Association. Betty Ford was vocal about women's issues. She supported the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal, and she supported the Equal Rights Amendment. She openly discussed her breast cancer and mastectomy. When Michelle Obama was first lady, one of her key initiatives was to push for healthier nutrition and food choices. That translated into a change for public school lunches around the country. In the 80s, Nancy Reagan appeared in a popular sitcom to boost her Just Say No campaign. Who's talking about Mrs. Reagan? I'm concerned about drug abuse, especially among the young. Wow, that is commitment. Nancy Reagan was so determined to stop drug abuse, she even went on a sitcom to speak out on it, which would be impossible to do today. I mean, TV shows are so much more adult now. I mean, it's easy to tell Gary Coleman not to do drugs. It's a lot harder to try and do that on Euphoria. Just say no, Zendaya. Bitch, you should have been here season one. But it's through that activism that first ladies get to show who they really are and how they want the world to change. You know, Michelle Obama cared about health. Hillary Clinton cared about children and education. Melania cared about stopping cyberbullies. And say what you want, but her agenda got done. And the thing about being a first lady is that they're not just expected to promote social causes. They're also expected to be style influencers. Jackie Kennedy's pullbox hats, Nancy Reagan's red dresses, Hillary Clinton's pantsuits, or Pat Nixon's Xena cosplay. But of course, all this attention also means that first ladies get subjected to intense scrutiny by the press. And it's not something that they've been happy about. To be the first lady may be the most difficult job in Washington. Martha Washington famously said the role of first lady can sometimes feel like a state prisoner. Michelle Obama wore a pair of shorts, just regular pair of mom shorts, and an uproar ensued, days of video uh, commentary and pictures and debate about whether it's okay for a first lady to wear shorts. Andrew Jackson's wife, Rachel, was blasted in the papers uh, for being a pipe-smoking hillbilly from Tennessee. Jackie Kennedy called the press harpies, and she hated the constant attention. Best Truman felt very uncomfortable, very ill at ease with all the fanfare and the attention of the press. There was a famous uh, incident where she was doing a christening of a ship and she went to break the bottle and they forgot to score the bottle ahead of time. So she's banging it and banging and, ba and it just won't break. And she was humiliated. She told her husband, I'm not doing another public appearance. Oh, poor Bess Truman. I honestly feel bad for her because we've all had that moment where we just can't open a jar of peanut butter. But imagine if the entire country was watching you struggle with that jar. Uh, almost got it, everybody. Hold on, try running hot water over it. I tried that already. If you ask me, the person to blame is the one who started this whole tradition. Like, who thought it was a good idea to christen a new ship by smashing it with a champagne bottle? You don't christen a new car by slashing the tires with a samurai sword. And honestly, all the first ladies are in an unfair situation because none of them asked to be in that position. Martha Washington was right. It is sort of like a prison. Although it's weird to say you feel like a prisoner when you own slaves yourself. 
Sometimes I just feel like I can't leave. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Mrs. Masser, I think I do. But maybe the most fascinating thing about first ladies is that even though no one votes for them and they kind of make up the job as they go, just by virtue of being married to the president, they can end up having a lot more power than many elected officials. The first lady is the most powerful woman in the country because she has the ear, first thing in the morning and last thing at night, of the f most powerful man in the country. Going back to the very first first lady, Martha Washington, and the second one, Abigail Adams, both of them were politically involved. They were involved in cabinet decisions. They were involved in campaigning. These women were political partners. Nancy Reagan was pulling a lot of the strings, calling many of the shots from President Ronald Reagan's first campaign for the White House back in 1980 to his Cold War ending triumph in 1987. Hillary Clinton became more involved, obviously, in policymaking than any first lady before her. She had an office in the West Wing. Bill Clinton even ran on the slogan, buy one, get one free. In 1919, Edith Wilson was unofficially running the country after her husband Woodrow suffered a stroke. That's insane, man. Not only have first ladies influenced the president, Edith Wilson ended up running the government. And by the way, that totally screwed the vice president over. I mean, like 90% of the vice president's job is being there in case the president goes down. So that's like being Tom Brady's backup and then he gets hurt, but then Giselle comes out like, no, 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 I got this. Get back on the bench, loser. I throw for my husband. So as the Biden administration gets underway, history suggests that Jill Biden will likely be a major part of it. Because first ladies always have been. And if you don't know, now you know. All right, when we come back, the talented Michael Kiwanuka will be joining us for a chat, so don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with critically acclaimed singer slash songwriter, Michael Kiwanuka. We talked about his most recent album, which has earned him his first Grammy nomination and what the ride has been like to the top. Michael Kiwanuka, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Oh, man. I, I'm a, a little um, sad to be talking to you right now because your concert was the last live event that I attended before all of the lockdowns happened. It was, um, it was at the theater in LA. Forgive me, I forget the name. Yes, yes, and it was a beautiful, intimate show. And I just remember it being like this transcendent experience and everyone was just like feeling the love. And I was like, oh man, we got to do this more often. And then the lockdown hits. Man, that's lame. I had no idea that you, you were there. That, that's amazing. And that was one of my um, favorite shows ever. Definitely favorite shows in, in Los Angeles. But yeah, man, I mean, I can't, I can't wait to get back and playing music again and when we get through this. What made that show really special for me as well was, was you having your family there. You know, it was really cool when you were introducing your family and like they became part of the show. And what has that journey been like for them? You know, because your family came from Uganda, then moved to the UK. You know, your dad was out there hustling for your family. And I mean, to see the journey and to see the rise to the place you are now, I mean, it must really be insane for them and for yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, mom still texts me. I mean, she texts me today because she heard a song on the radio here in the UK and she was like, it's on the radio, it's still, it's still like, <laughs> they just love it, you know, and feel so excited because obviously growing up playing music, it was, they were always super supportive, but it was like, yeah, coming from Uganda, it was sort of like a risk to support their son doing, playing the guitar all day. And right, like, right. Really doing any schoolwork and mum had to really 
take a leap of faith and dad to be like, okay, we'll, we'll support you, but make sure you, you know, you practice and work hard and, and for them it paid off. So I, I owe so much to them for just being supportive and, 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 and it, you know, it was difficult for them, but they, they're enjoying it now. I remember being at your show and genuinely, I don't say this to gas you up. It was like a, it's like you were telling us a story, but a story that was happening inside you as a human being. You know, it was very personal. It, 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 was very, um, um, it was very vulnerable at the same time. And then I was shocked to find out that you at, at a point were really struggling with, with self-doubt. Like you, you had imposter syndrome. You were like, I can't do this to the point where it cost you an opportunity to, to collaborate with Kanye West. Tell, tell me a little bit about that and, and how you've managed to work through that. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. It was just basically, I was, I was maybe it was to do a bit with growing up, but I just sort of was always trying to fit in. I thought in order to, you know, be accepted or sort of succeed in whatever you're doing, whether it's music, getting a job in the bank, you, you sort of had to fit. Yeah. Bill. And then I thought it was the same with music. So every time I tried to do music that was like what was on the radio or just I thought people would like, it just sounded awful. And then, <laughs> my, then when I was doing my own thing, it was like, I love this, but it's like, are people going to understand 10-minute songs? Are people going to be offended by lyrics? Or like if I do a song like Black Man in the White World, what's going to happen? No one's going to play it. All these things. Right, so right. I, I thought, you know, I'm never going to make it. And I, I just had all these doubts. So when I went to the studio with... You go, you go to the studio with someone who's amazing, like Kanye West. I just kept thinking, what does he want me to sound like instead of oh, me? Oh, yeah, right, right. Then, so it was just kind of like learning and growing up and learning how that being an artist is about being yourself. And the unique thing that makes you unique, the thing that makes you different is, is your, your strength. Your third album is entitled Kiwanuka. Most artists will, will, will call their debut album by their name. You know, it was interesting to me that you went with your third album as Kiwanuka. What, what was the reason for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally your first album is self-titled. And it was two reasons. It was like, I definitely knew it would be a statement artistically because it would be like, oh, interesting that the third album is self-titled. What's he trying to say? Maybe it was mm -hmm. And at the same time, it reflected kind of what I was saying before about and the self-imposter, you know, imposter syndrome. It was sort of like a declaration. To oh, like, right, right, right. Yeah, this is who I am. And I finally come to terms with that. And I'm enjoying that. And it's threefold because then my name was always something that I love, but it carries a lot. So it talks about my heritage, but it also describes that I'm, you know, a third generation Britain. It says so much about me without you even meeting me. So right, right, right. It's the same thing, even just the pronunciation of the name, everything says so much. So I thought, and I used to sort of hide behind that name too when I was growing up. The same way I wanted to fit in with, with music, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to say my name. I wish it was simple. And then I got older, I sort of like, felt so sad that I thought that. So now I'm so proud of it. I just thought, yeah, let's call the album and have it big and at the front. So that's why I went for it. It feels like your, your entire journey has been one of, you know, um, I think working through the past as you build your future. You're now on a journey where you have been nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Rock Album. What's amazing to me is that while this is happening, you are in the UK performing at your old high school where you performed your first concert. In fact, we're gonna be playing uh, one of those performances at the end of the show. I would love to know what that journey is like because I don't like I don't know about you, but when I think about high school and I think about going back, 
I still think the bullies are gonna be waiting there for me and they're gonna be like ready to like find me around the corner and I'll be like, but I'm the host of the Daily Show. And they'll be like, give us your Daily Show money. What was that like for you going, did you come in with like, I'm Grammy nominated swag? Or did you go like, oh boy, it's it's Michael with the funny last name swag? <laughs> a bit of both, I mean, it was, school for me was interesting because I think I got saved by music. So I definitely was like the kid that had like, no change to it now really, but I had like the picky Afro hair that was sort of funny shaped like flat at the back and it was like this guy's yep, weird yep. guitar but it should be and it was, I, I didn't have that for a bit but then and it was weird and that but then when I, I sort of started a band and did my music people liked it so it was all right I could kind of avoid the bullies and the so going back to school for me and the reason why I went back to school did that performance it was like I felt really lucky because music sort of saved me and that was the place I found it I remember my first concert ever I did was in that hall Right. And in that moment, I was like, oh, I found what I need to do. I need to go to any house parties. I need to fit in. I need to even maybe. And much to my mum's sort of dismay, I didn't even need to like study. I just thought, if I focus on the music, I'll be fine. And uh, and it worked out. So I thought going back would be a nice full circle. Well, my friend, uh, it was it was the best kind of triumphant return anybody could hope for. Um, I hope the Grammys is as triumphant for you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I can't wait for you to get back out there playing music and doing what you're doing in all the venues that you had to cancel for coronavirus. Thank you again so much. I appreciate you, my dude. Have a good one. Don't forget, Michael's album, Kiwanuka, is available right now. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is the official launch of Paramount+. Plus. It's the streaming service that has everything you ever wanted, including me. Yeah, episodes of The Daily Show will be streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So now you can watch the show whenever and wherever you are, even in the bathroom. But don't worry, I won't tell. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.